Thank you, Stephen, Amanda, team. Good morning again, church. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, and grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 is where we'll start in just a minute. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, and look, we have had an amazing day of worship already. More to come. Uh, and look, there's always things going on. Last week, I, if you were not here, uh, we had the privilege uh, of seeing Ellen and Exie uh, Young get baptized. Uh, two sisters who got baptized over in the baptistry waters last week. We're celebrating with them. We had uh, baptisms in the first service uh, today, and we'll have baptisms next week as well. It is always exciting to see the Lord bringing more people to faith in Him. But as you see the Youngs, be sure to congratulate uh, them uh, on their baptism from uh, last week. And also, uh, listen, as we said before, before Easter is coming up. Uh, it's going to be here in just a couple different weeks. I hope you're making your plans to be here, 8, 9, 30, and 11. And I hope you'll come Thursday and Friday as well. They are incredible services. They're a highlight of my year uh, as well. Super unique. Uh, we do things differently there than we do almost any other part of the year. So come and be a part of that. Uh, but look, there's a reason we celebrate Easter every year. This is the defining moment in all of human history. What we celebrate at Easter is the death of Jesus Christ, that he literally is going to die for our sins. That's the predicament that we find ourselves in. And look, we've been learning that over the course of this series. We're still in our series entitled The Repenters. We're learning how to be a repenting people. And the beginning of that is just starting to recognize, wait, I need a savior. I cannot fix myself I am a sinner, and Jesus Christ, out of his great love for us, comes and offers us his entire life to pay for our sins. The reason that you and I have hope is because Jesus has come and has given his life for us. And so there's hope in the midst of this fight, even with indwelling sin. But that is not the end of the story. Jesus doesn't simply die on the cross. He rises from the grave. And so he is alive even today and says, listen, I want to give this life to you simply by grace, not by your works, by what I have done. But what that tells us is, is that in our fight against sin, even uh, though we have an indwelling sin that has been dethroned, it is no longer in control of us anymore. Even though we are wrestling with sin, we now have hope because not only have we been set free from the power of sin, we have now been given an eternal life. And day by day, you and I are growing as we constantly repent. And as we sow to the Spirit, we find ourselves changing, growing, becoming more like Him, which leads us into greater joy and greater peace and ultimately eternal life in Him. This is the journey that we find ourselves on. So as we continue to go through that journey, we're working these last couple weeks, marching up into Easter. We've decided to take these last few Sundays to really talk about the major battlefields that we're going to fight on as we battle our flesh. Last week, if you're here, we talked about sexual temptation. This is one of those universal temptations that we're all going to face. We face it in different ways. But we all have to wrestle with that. How do we kind of deal with sexual temptation as it comes to us? This week, we're gonna look at a second battlefield. We're gonna look at greed. And greed is one of those things that we don't like to talk about, much like sexual temptation, but it's one of those universal things as well. This is something that we all deal with. In some way, shape, or form, we are all going to be dealing with greed. 
Now, this word is a biblical word. In fact, in, in scripture, we've actually seen it over these past few weeks. Uh, in this list of vices, you will see it. Uh, typically in the ESV, they will translate this as covetousness. Uh, covetousness. But this is one of those few places where I really don't like the ESV translation. I think the other English translations get a little better because covetousness is hard to say. Uh, it just is, right? And, and when you say covetousness, it doesn't really convey the meaning. But when you say the word greed, you kind of get it, don't you? Like you can feel it when you say it, greed. Like there's just this feeling that's attached to it. And that's literally what the biblical word means. It means a desire to have more. When the Bible speaks of covetousness or greed, it is this desire that we feel to have more. And it can be more of anything. We sometimes think of it as more money or more possessions, but it is this desire simply to have more in life. And again, this is something that all of us wrestle with. Now, some of us might say, Adam, listen, actually, that may be other people, but that doesn't affect me because I just don't have a lot, right? I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of stuff. And therefore, I don't have a lot of greed to deal with. But greed is no respecter of persons. It does not matter how much you have or do not have. It is simply this desire that we feel. So, I mean, students, listen, you might say, hey, listen, I I don't have a whole lot of money. I don't have a whole lot of stuff. Therefore, this doesn't apply to me. Actually, yes, it does. For all of us in the whole room, this is something that we all deal with. You see, being rich doesn't automatically make you greedy, and being poor doesn't make you a saint. Money by itself is not a vice, and poverty by itself is not a virtue, Instead, we need to come to a place where instead of allowing this greed, this desire for more to drive us, instead, we turn to the Lord. But if we don't, there are terrible consequences. Look at this. I want to show you this first before we get to Luke chapter 12. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I've underlined all the places. I want you to look at how the desire for things it kind of runs through all of this. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. I hope you see a couple different things here. First off, I want you to see the seriousness of what we're dealing with. Hopefully by now, in the course of this series, you say, okay, Adam, I recognize that this flesh that I fight against, even though I feel it almost coming from inside of me, to give that free reign is dangerous. It's not going to steal away my salvation, but look what it can do. It can plunge you into ruin and destruction. It can even draw you away from the faith and pierce yourself with many pangs. When we fail to repent, when we fail to identify the flesh and resist it, this has destructive consequences for us. So we have to be on our guard. But look at what we're on our guard against, the desire to be rich. These senseless and harmful desires, the love of money, this craving for some things. That is what we're talking about. We're talking about greed. It is this desire for more. And whether it be money, whether it be possessions, whether it be uh, any other thing in life that affects us in different ways, that desire is destructive if left unchecked. And so this morning, I want to show you what Jesus has to say about this. He actually tells us a full parable about it in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. 
And hopefully you've got your copy of God's word there. You can look at that maybe on your device. Uh, But Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13, we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's kind of going from one place to another. And notice what he says here, starting at verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will big larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is an interesting parable on multiple levels. First off, it does not start with the parable. It starts in the real world and then it leads us into parable land. But look at what's happening to kind of prompt or spark the parable. A guy comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, would you tell my brother to split the inheritance with me? Now, that would not be an uncommon request. Rabbis would typically jump into family disputes and make decisions here. So it's not an uncommon request. But imagine if you only had one thing to ask of Jesus, and that's what you asked. Seriously, you get one shot with the rabbi, and that's the only thing you care about? Get me more money? Just help me with my brother and the inheritance? It's crazy. But look, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't respond to him at all. Look how Jesus replies to a direct question. Help me with my brother and the inheritance. Jesus says, man, who who made me an arbiter or a judge over you? Which is interesting because Jesus is the judge over everybody. He's the arbiter over everybody. So why is he deflecting the question? He, He literally dodges the question which sometimes is going to happen with us. Have you ever had this happen to you where you ask Jesus a direct question and he does not answer? Well, you ask him a very specific, direct question. It's yes or no. You're going to do it or not? Should I do this or that? You ask him a very direct question. You know what he says? He's not going to tell you. He's going to say something different or he's just going to move along when you never get an answer. Why Why in the world would the Lord not answer a direct question? Well, this is one of the few places where you can actually see the answer. Look at verse 15. He responds to the man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Then verse 15, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here's what Jesus just did. He just told you what was really going on. When this man brings a request to the Lord, he couches it in terms of justice. Hey, tell my brother to do the right thing. Hey, tell my brother that he's being unfair. Hey, tell my brother he should be more generous. Hey, tell my brother he should do something different. But I'm the victim here. I'm the one who's in trouble. Jesus, you gotta help me. He couches it in terms of justice. But Jesus says the real issue is greed. He said what's really going on in your heart is greed. You need to be on your guard against all covetousness, against all greed, because our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Sometimes God's not going to answer the question because God needs us to look deeper. We may not even be aware of it, 
But when sometimes we ask questions of the Lord, we don't recognize there's something deeper going on and the Lord wants to get down there. He wants to see what's really happening. And for this young man, the problem for him is his greed. And so the Lord tells a a parable. It's a parable about a guy who has too much stuff and not had a place to store it. Now, it's interesting and important to note, uh, there's nothing evil going on in this parable. At the beginning, he has not done anything to illegally gain this wealth. It's not like he's been oppressing his workers or he failed to pay his workers or he did something shady. He just had a bumper crop. It just happened that he fell into a windfall. There's nothing wrong with that up here at the top. The issue comes in with how he responds to it. Because the way this man responds is, is that I just need bigger barns. I I need more places. I need all of this. God has given me more things. And guess what? This all must be for me. Everything that I have must be for me and me alone. And he's allowing greed to direct his actions in response to this bumper crop. And this is what greed does to us. When you and I are giving into greed, when we feel this desire for more, it is going to push us towards selfishness. You see, there's three aspects of greed. There's three things that greed are always going to push us towards. First off, greed always wants more. Greed always wants more. It does not matter how much you have. Greed tells us that if you just had more, you'd be happier. One is good. Two would be better, and 10 would be awesome. If I just have more things, then it bears true that surely I will just be happier. I will have more joy. I will have more pleasure. One thing is good, 10 is better. I want more things in my life. When this guy sees I have a bumper crop, he says, then I need more barns. I need bigger barns. I need more, because surely if I have more, it's better, right? Right? Or is it? Like, have we ever actually sat down and asked ourselves the question, is more always better? Does more always entail something better? Because if anybody is in a position to judge this, it is us as Americans. Because as Americans, we are consumers. We have been grown under an ideology that says the way to have joy is to have more stuff. And we get more stuff. We are by far the richest nation on the planet. We have more access to resources than anybody on the planet. Therefore, we should be the happiest people on the planet. True? Except that we don't find that to be the case. Let me show you a couple statistics. This is interesting what's happened over the past 50 years. Check this out. Uh, Just a few stats. The average square footage of a house in America back in 1973 was 1,600 square feet. 1,600 square foot home was the average across America. In 2019, that's the closest I could find, 2,300 square feet is the average size of house in America. That's not doubling, but it's close. It's like 80%. An 80% increase in the size of the homes that all of us live in. And let's be honest, for many of us in this room, we got homes that are bigger than that. We said, man, I got a much bigger home than that. Okay, back in 1973, only 1,600 square feet. So our homes have almost doubled over the past 50 years. Here's the next one. Uh, here is the car ownership. The percentage of families with more than one car in America. Back in 1960, 22%. Only 22% of families had more than one car in America. Fast forward to 2017, 58%. It's tripled. 
triple the number of people in America who have two cars or more. They not only can afford two cars, they're using two cars to get around and go all the different places. We used to get by with one. No, now we have two or more in America. You get up to three or more, it's even more interesting. So you see that. Here's another interesting one. How about obesity? All right, so back in 1960, the number of people who are technically described as obese in America, 15%. 2019, 40% of America is obese. That does not include overweight, by the way. That's a whole separate category. I was offended by that. All right, so... Because there's a whole other crew of us. All right, so you got, but just obesity, I'm not making any statement here except to say that we clearly have been eating more. All right, look, we are. As a nation, we have almost tripled the number of obese people in America. So get this, we live in bigger homes, we have more cars, and we eat more stuff, which means, therefore, we should be happier, right? Wrong. All right, so there's this thing called the General Social Survey, and a group's been doing this back since 1972, where they go around asking people, are you very happy, kind of happy, or not happy at all? And they've been doing this every single year, broad sampling study in America for over 50 years. You want to know what's happened with a number of people who have been, who are very happy in America since 1972? Remember, all the things have changed since 1972. You know what the change in percentage between the people who are very happy in America over the past 50 years, you know what it's been? nothing. It's the same. It runs in about the 35% range. Sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit over. Never really gets into the high 40s, never gets into the low teens. It's always right in the mid-30s. For 50 years, it does not change. How can that be? We have more stuff than we've ever had before. We have almost twice as much stuff as we had before. If more equaled better, then we would be happier, and yet we aren't. Why? Because more is a myth. The idea that more is going to make you happier is a myth, but our flesh does not believe it. It tells us you need more. You got to have more. You must have more because having more makes you happy, correct? Not actually true. Here's the second thing that greed does. Greed wants to own. Greed wants to own different things. Look at the way the man talks about different things in this passage. All right, look at verse 17. He says, says to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I'll store, I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample things laid up. My, 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 like those birds and finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Do you hear it? It's like a drumbeat. He's like, it's mine. My barns, my windfall, my stuff, my soul, mine, 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 mine. You see, what greed does is, it's like you don't, can't simply experience something. You got to own it. You got to have it. This is why I can't just go to the beach. You got to have the beach house. I can't just go to the lake. I got to have a lake house. I can't just go to the library and get a book. I got to buy the book. I can't just go to this thing. I got to own the experience. I need to have it. I can't just borrow something from my neighbor. I need to have my own. I need to have these different things. I got to have my own stuff. I need to own this thing because that's where the pleasure comes from, right? I don't just want more. I want to own this thing. It needs to be mine. This is the greed of pulling it into myself, assuming that if I own it, well, then I will be happier. But that's not true. For a very simple reason, we don't own anything. Let that sink in for just a second. You and I don't own anything. I beg your pardon. I got pieces of paper that say I do. 
I've got legal documents that say I do. I own this thing. Really? How long have you owned it and how long will you get to keep it? Because you haven't owned it forever and you will not own it forever. Go back five generations and you can't trace where your money came from. Go five generations forward, you will not know where it is. It's different. Why? We are renters at best. And you can see that down in the passage. Uh, Look what he says in verse 20. He says, but God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Regardless of how many things we have, certainly we own ourselves, don't we? I'm in control of myself. I own myself. I direct my life. I tell me where I'm going. I own myself. Really? Because I didn't make myself get born. I didn't give myself a soul. And one day it will be required of me. I don't control that. I can't stop death at all. I am beholden to someone else. See, greed says I gotta own these things, but we don't ever actually get to own anything. It all gets taken away, which means there's no lasting joy. Here's a third thing that greed does. Greed wants to control. This is actually why we want to own. It's not about the owning. It's that we believe if that we own it, then we can control it. And that also is part of the pleasure. I need to be able to control this thing. In a chaotic world, I want to control these things. I need to do that. Go back to verses 18, you'll see something else. Or actually, verse 17. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build ruins. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul. I, 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 I. It's all about himself. What greed does is, is it brings all the focus back in on myself. I'm the one in control. I am the one doing this. I am owning this. I am building my own little fiefdom. This is what gives me some semblance of pleasure in the midst of this is because it's all about me. This is why when you find the word covetousness in most of these lists of vices, it is almost always associated with idolatry. Where it'll say greed, which is idolatry. What we're doing is, is I don't need, we're saying, I don't need God. I can take care of it. I am in control. I do these things. And if I own it, if I can control things, then I'll be okay, right? And we do this more often than we think. I I saw this in myself. I was surprised to find it years ago when I realized that I had been practicing retail therapy. Has anybody else ever done this before? Anybody know what retail therapy is? Retail therapy is when you feel bad and you decide you're going to go buy something to make yourself feel better, right? I didn't realize I was doing this, but I remember back in the day I was single and I was traveling around and inevitably I would find myself uh, just if I felt bad or things were going bad, I would be heading up to the summit to go buy something. Now, I was never terribly extravagant, but I would always just want to go and buy something. I'd go buy some music. There's a dated reference. You can tell how long ago this was. I go... But I go, I go buy something, right? I mean, I didn't need a big thing, but I needed to buy something. And it, I begin to, I would say, why? Why is it every time I get home from a, a trip, I gotta go buy something because it, it's retail therapy. What I was doing is this. I was saying, listen, I can't control the world. I can't even control what's going on inside of me. I can't control the chaos around me. But you know what I can control? I can buy this. It's mine. I did it. I'm in control. And when we do that, we, we just, we, we buy things to try to, give ourselves security. This is why we keep buying things on Amazon, by the way. You know that? We, we keep buying things on Amazon but because there's a joy when you buy it. There's a joy when it hits your doorstep. And there's also a reason why you have to go buy something else. 
because the joy wasn't just in the thing you got, it was in the buying. And so we bought this thing. Well, now I need to go buy this other thing to get this thing. Oh, and I got to get this other thing. And so there's boxes on your door all the time. It's because it's not about the thing itself. It's about the greed. It's about the more. It's about the owning. And ultimately, it's about the control. But that control is an illusion. We're not in control. If you assume that simply by having more money or a bigger house or more stuff, that you are going to be in control, it is an illusion. We're idolaters. And what the Lord calls us is fools. In verse 20, it says, But God says to him, You fool! This night your soul will be demanded of you. That word fool is a weird one for us because we don't use that word. We don't say fool, right? I mean, unless you're like, like making fun of somebody like, like in a funny way. But that seems silly. The word fool seems silly. In the Bible, this is not a silly word. On the one hand, you have wisdom, and on the other hand, you have foolishness. Wisdom leads to life. Foolishness leads to destruction. A fool is somebody who rejects God and does not understand that he is courting disaster. Imagine someone riding 90 miles on a motorcycle, no helmet, and decides to go off-roading. That person is a fool. Why? Because they're courting disaster. They could hurt themselves, kill themselves, hurt somebody else, kill somebody else. They would not intend to do any of it, and yet that is exactly what they're heading towards, and they don't even know it. That person is a fool, and that is us. But instead of looking to the Lord, we look to ourselves, we look to things, we look to possessions and say, if I just have the abundance of possessions, I will have more life. We are fools because ultimately all of it is stripped away. All of it is taken away from us and we are left with nothing. We get nothing. And so we are foolish. And so the response then is to say, okay, I'm going to fight my flesh. When I have these cravings for more, cravings for more stuff, I'm going to fight the flesh, but it's not that easy. We can't simply say, well, just be content with what you have. Don't be greedy. Well, you already knew that, right? I mean, you didn't need me to tell you that. You already knew that before you came in. It just doesn't work when we say, don't be greedy, be content. We cannot simply fight the flesh with a, a frontal assault. Instead, we must turn and instead so to the spirit. How do we turn and recognize that the Lord actually fulfills all that we need and more? How do we get to a place where we recognize that the Lord is actually more than enough? Just like we're saying, for all that we need. And for that, we have to turn to the Lord and realize three opposite things. Instead of wanting more and owning and control, we look to something else. We look to the Lord and specifically to the presence of the Lord. If you want to fight greed and fight your flesh when it gives you these cravings, we must believe in the presence of the Lord. Look at this in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Notice what it says here. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now you've likely heard that last phrase before, I will never leave you or forsake you. But look at the context. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Why? He says, you can be content with what you have. Why? Because I'm here. The Lord is with you. He's not off with somebody else. He says, no, I am here. You're, you're not gonna go hungry. You're not, you're not gonna go you're naked and, or in danger. Don't you understand? I am with you. And if I am with you, you will have more than enough. Can you and I trust the presence of God? Because again, most of us believe, yes, God is everywhere, but do you truly believe? Look at your heart and say, do I believe that he is with me? 
the Holy Spirit lives in me, that I am living in the Spirit, walking in his Spirit. He is here with me. Do we believe in the very presence of God? And I say, well, yeah, Adam, I believe in that. I just don't know if he's going to give me anything. Sure, he's here. Maybe he gives you stuff, but I just don't know if he's going to give me anything. We need to believe not only in the presence of God, but also the provision of God. You need to believe in the presence of God, but also the provision of God. Skip down just a few verses right here in Luke chapter 12. Skip down to verse 29. I'm going to put it up on the screen too. In the same passage, right after this parable, look at what Jesus says. He says, and do not seek what you were to eat and what you were to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Does this passage sound familiar? It should. We we go over it often here. This is the parallel passage to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, don't run around saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? And what are we going to wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. He said it there in the context of worry. But here he says the exact same thing. Jesus did repeat himself, but look at the context here. Here the context is less about worry and it is more about greed. He says that at the root of your problem with greed is that you do not trust me. You do not trust that I'm with you, nor do you trust that I will provide for you. What God is promising is this. He goes, look, if I provide for birds and weeds, don't you understand? You're my child. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you all that you need. Don't you understand? I am Jira, the provider. I take care of you. Do you not believe that I'm going to give you manna from heaven? I'm going to take care of you. You will not go hungry. Do you actually believe that God will provide what we need and more? That's a serious question. Do you honestly believe that God will provide you with all you need and more? Greed tells you, nope, 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 nope. It's all up to you. You gotta get it. If you don't get it, you're gonna go hungry. If you don't do everything, you're not gonna get what you want. If you don't do it, you gotta get more. You've gotta grab. You've gotta strive. It's all on you. What if you and I recognize that we have a God who's a provider? We believe in the provision of God. And yet still you might say, yeah, okay, maybe he'll provide for us. He's not gonna give me anything good, right? He's gonna provide for me, but it's gonna be like rice and beans, right? I mean, I'm not getting steak. Like, what I want is a steak. I'm going to get rice and beans. I'm not going to die. I won't be hungry, but I'm not going to be happy. Is that how we think about the Lord? Because look, you can't just trust his presence or his provision. You got to trust the prodigality of God. The prodigality of God. There's an interesting word. We know this word prodigal from the parable of the prodigal son. That word prodigal, by the way, just means extravagant, just to kind of, kind of just spend in a, in a lavish or extravagant way. Tim Keller wrote a book on that parable called The Prodigal God, where he says it's not simply the son who prodigally wastes all of his life. He says, no, there's a prodigal God who lavishes his grace on us who do not deserve it, who does not give sparingly, but gives lavishly. He just lavishly gives his love to us. This God who is present, this God who provides is the God who lavishes his love on us. If you do not believe this, please look to the cross. Look what he says in Romans chapter eight. 
Romans chapter 8 is verse 30, put it up there if you will, 32. It says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave us up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The father has given us his son. He gives us his very heart. He gives us himself. He doesn't just give us an emissary, an angel. He says, no, I'm going to send my son, my one and only son, my beloved son, and I'm going to send him to die for you if the Lord is willing to give such an extravagant gift in order to save us. Do you honestly think he's going to get stingy now? God, I need something. Mm, We'll wait. Maybe later. I don't know if I can afford it. Maybe, I don't know. This is the God who gives us lavishly. The cross is the sign that says, I give everything for you. You can trust me. Look what else he's going to say. Check this next one. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you catch that? who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, I I, I give you more than enough. Overflowing. Psalm 23, my, my, my cup runs over. You anoint my head with oil. You refresh my soul. You give me more than I deserve. This is the character. This is the heart. This is the nature of the God who loves us. Put that back together one more time. Please note, now some people will take something like this and they will pervert it. This is where the health and wealth prosperity people take it too far. Some charismatic folks that take this too far. We said, what this means then is that God wants all of us to be rich. We're all gonna be billionaires. You all have seven houses. We're all gonna have that. That is not what this verse says. The problem though is for many of us in this room, we don't go there. We go to the opposite. We assume that God's only gonna give us the bare minimum. He's only gonna give us sustenance to get by. When he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, I can provide all things. I wanna give you everything richly to enjoy. Don't trust in your own riches. They are uncertain. They can go away faster than you think. But when you trust me, I'm the God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. When we put our trust in a father who loves us, though we don't own, though we don't control, we find ourselves, we have all we need and more when we put our trust in him. That's the difference between sowing to the flesh and following our greed and sowing to the spirit and finding eternal life. And the question is, is are we going to reject the flesh? Will we reject the flesh? It's gonna rise up until you know. I dare you to try it. Tell yourself that you're not gonna, (laughs) you can't have that house. You don't get the remodel. You can't have the new car. You don't get to have this new thing in your closet. You don't get to have the new thing you've been waiting on. You don't get the new thing on Amazon. (gasps) You will feel your flesh rise up and say, no. You gonna fight that? Or do we let it run amok? Because you see, when you and I turn to the Lord, this amazing thing happens. Let me show you this from Philippians chapter three. Here's another passage that's very familiar to us. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Did you catch that? It's not problem to be rich or poor, to be full or hungry. Paul says, I can do all of that. And I have been all of that. And guess what? I have been fine in all of that. Why? Why? Because I know the God who I trust 
He is present. He provides. He is prodigal in his love for me. It doesn't matter whether I'm high, low, rich, poor, in great circumstances or bad circumstances. Just like we sang earlier, in every circumstance, I can be content. Why? Because my God is enough. He gives me all I need and more. What would happen if we trusted him in that? Well, let me show you four different ways that we can do that very quickly. Four ways we can begin to fight our flesh if we really want to put this into practice. First thing is this, we need to examine our desires. We need to examine our desires. When you and I want something, again, there's nothing wrong with wanting something, but when we want something, we ought to take that to the Lord. And just say, Father, would you, would you help me? What is this desire? I may not even see it, just like these young men. I may not see what's really going on here. Is this a legitimate desire? Or do I need to work on something? What's happening here? Just bring it to the Lord. And when you and I find greed, when our greed is exposed, we have a very simple thing to do. We repent. That's what we've been learning this whole series. We repent. We turn away. We say, okay, Father, I'm sorry. Can you help me? Would you change me? I can't change myself. But Lord, I choose you. I turn away from the greed. I I, I repent to follow after you, to find my security in you. We repent. But that's not gonna happen until we examine our desires. Do we actually look long enough at why we want something? Why we think we need something? Why this is so important to us? Dig down and find out. That's going to help you to grow. So number one, we examine our desires. Number two, trust the goodness of God. Trust his goodness. If you find yourself with a desire, say, Adam, I can't do that. I mean, if I actually ask the Lord, he's probably not going to give it to me. And so God's not going to give it to me. I got to give it to me. Because listen, God's not going to give me the good stuff, but I got to get the good stuff. And, and listen, I just want a little bit more. So God's fine and everything, but I got I to do this on my own. So I can't pray about it. I can't do those kind of things, but I'm just going to do this on my own. Do you hear yourself? It is quite literally the flesh talking. It can talk. You can hear it. You can hear it. I can't talk to God about this. We just need this thing. Don't pray about it. We need to do this thing. That's literally the flesh talking. So the next time you desire something, why don't we just pray about it? Have we ever thought about that? You need a new house. You need a new car. You need a new thing. Pray about it. Adam, will that work? Yes, it will work. Is it going to give me what I want? Probably not. If you're greedy, sometimes he'll give you more than you expected. Sometimes he'll give you more than what you asked for. Why? Because he's gracious. But instead of grasping after it, what, what happened if I said, God, what do you think? You think now? You think this one? What do you think? All my money is yours. My life is yours. What do you think? Can I, can I do this? Can we pray about it? Can we trust the provision of God? What if I actually believe that he was good? I believe that he loved me. I believe that he treats me like a son. He might treat you like a son or a daughter. I believed in the goodness of God. Pray about it. Here's the third thing. What if we really did our best to enjoy what we already have? What if we did our best to enjoy what we already have? See, greed says, no, 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 that stuff's trash. You gotta have more. All that stuff in your closet, your three closets is trash. You gotta have more. That stuff in your garage, trash. You gotta have more. Only the good new stuff is the good stuff. And I, I, don't, I can't enjoy what we have, but our closets are full. Our garages are full. Our houses are full. Our lives are full. What would happen if I just began to enjoy what we already have? That might change your perspective. I was talking to Stephen Potassic a few weeks ago, and he shared something the Lord has led him into, which I thought was really cool. He said a few years ago, the Lord asked him to um, begin pointing out five things every day that he can be thankful for. 
to write down five things every day that he's thankful for. But here's the twist. You can never double up, ever. Which means you only get to count your, your wife once. You can only count your kids once. You can only count your house once. And so you can't say that every day. You gotta come up with five new things every day. Imagine doing that for a week or a month or a year. And you have to keep looking for five things every day. Here's what begins to happen Instead of looking at all the things you don't have, you begin to recognize how much the Lord has blessed me. My whole attitude changes when I go from being, feeling aggrieved, God, give me this inheritance, to look at all the stuff you give me every day. Amazing. Changes your attitude. So into the flesh, so into the spirit. Here's the final thing. Seek ways to be generous. Seek ways to be Generous. You see, when we're following after greed, it's all my, 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 more, 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 me, me, me. When this guy gets a windfall, he has no thought of of blessing his family, blessing other people, blessing his area, blessing his community. He thinks it it all must be for me. What if instead we recognize that I have more than I need and I just say, God, if you've given me more than I can use, how can I just give it to others? How can I bless others? I cannot tell you how encouraged I have been being pastor of this church seeing so many people in this congregation who the world would consider wealthy, who make it their job to find ways to be generous. I have watched it for years and it is astounding. The number of people who said, man, the Lord has blessed me and I wanna find ways of blessing other people who go out of their way to bless other people. It is humbling to watch. I love what we have seen our congregation do. I know, look, we've been talking about changing our strategy with our our Chelsea campus, but it has been amazing to watch what this community has done over the past few years to say, listen, we we are literally going to give millions of dollars. We're going to send staff and friends and, and spend all this time to build a congregation, a physical building and a congregation that we will not attend, a building we will never enjoy a group of people we don't often interact with and we want to lavishly give. Why? Because we want people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we want people to come and experience it. Even if I don't directly benefit from it, I want to give. This is what we've watched this congregation do for years. It is amazing. And it brings joy. So much more so than the fleeting pleasures of greed. What would happen if we said, Father, make me generous because I believe in your presence, your provision, and your prodigality so much that I want to live like you. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to close in worship. Stephen started us here earlier, but let's continue in an attitude of prayer. Can you just begin to open up your heart before the Lord? And be honest. Can we just ask him, God, is there there any greedy thing in me? A covetousness. A desire for more when in reality I have already more than I need. Maybe he wants to look deep and, and just say, hey, listen, this isn't even about what you want. It's about why you want it. It's about us trying to find our security in the things of the world instead of finding it in him of trying to find comfort in the things of this world when the only true lasting comfort comes in him. Things of this world are blessings. They're great. But they can't satisfy. What's he revealing to you? 
I wonder if even now we could begin to lift that up and say, Father, can you change me? I see it. I repent. Father, I can't change myself. Can you, can you change my heart? Reveal even more to me that you are enough. You're more than enough. You're everything. God, in you, I have all I need and more. So Lord, I choose you over the things of this world. And so Heavenly Father, do that very thing. Speak to us, help us. I see you moving in so many people's lives, but Lord, this is a constant temptation. We have to constantly be aware on our guard as you taught us. So help us this morning by your spirit to speak, reveal, and then heal as we repent. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up with me, if you will. Let's worship the Lord together. These altars are open. I'd love to pray with you if the Lord would lead you there. But let's choose to respond in worship.